Hello to you listening to this. Welcome to or welcome back to the Liability Podcast, where I, Bree Cheyenne, mostly talk about unsolved crimes against children, anything from older to newer. This case actually has already been solved, but before I decided to focus more on unsolved crimes, I still did have a few cases I either recorded or finished notes for that majority of my supporters never got to see or hear. That being said, I decided to release them so the next few releases will be a mix between solved and unsolved cases. If this is the first episode you're finding me through, I hope you enjoy and stay for more content. You can also look to the description to find links to my other social media where I post about content just like this. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman were a pair of 10-year-old best friends living in Soham, Cambridgeshire, England, Jessica being just one month older than Holly. The date is August 4th, 2002, and Jessica has just left her home at 11.45 a.m. to attend a barbecue that Holly's family was holding at their home. Prior to leaving for this barbecue, Jessica informed her parents of her intention to give Holly a gift she had got for her. It was a necklace. She got it for a while on a vacation that her family had just returned from. Upon arriving to Holly's home, the two girls and a friend named Natalie Parr hung out and played on the computer while listening to music for about half an hour before Natalie decided to return home. By 3.15 p.m., Jessica and Holly had changed into distinctive replica soccer jerseys, one of which belonged to Holly and the other belonged to her older brother, Oliver. Before the girls started dinner with the rest of the guests, Jessica's mother, Nicola Wells, took a photograph of the two girls wearing the jerseys, which became important to the investigation later on. They continued to enjoy the barbecue until around 6 p.m. when they decided to return to Holly's room to continue playing. At approximately 6.15 p.m., the girls decided to leave the house to go get some sweets from a nearby vending machine, and they did so without ever informing anyone. It wasn't until 8 p.m. that Nicola discovered both of the girls were gone when she went to notify them to say goodbye to their guests. Nicola was obviously alarmed and she and her husband Kevin Wells decided to initially search the house and nearby streets, but she believed Jessica and Holly wouldn't be off into any trouble because they were good girls, so she figured they must be coming back soon. Also, their curfew was 8.30 p.m., so she figured she would have waited until at least then before she started, like, really freaking out. However, when the minutes passed by 8.30 and it was now 8.45, Nicola grew increasingly concerned and decided to call the Chapmans to determine if the girls were there, only to discover Jessica's parents were also concerned that she hadn't come home. Subsequently, both girls were reported missing by their families around 10 p.m. on August 4th. The search to locate the girls became one of the largest in UK history. Police immediately began investigating and over 400 officers were assigned full-time to the search with the added help of hundreds of volunteers and Air Force personnel that stationed at nearby air bases. The photo Nicholas took of the girls just a few hours prior to their disappearance, the one of their um, one of them wearing the matching soccer jerseys, it was released in the media as well as their physical descriptions. The parents of both girls were adamant that their daughters were not prone to talk to strangers, with this being something that was heavily impressed upon them from both their parents and at school. 
Investigators questioned every registered sex offender in Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire, as well as over 200 registered sex offenders across the UK, all were eliminated as suspects. They also investigated any possible leads from the internet, wondering if the girls arranged a meetup with someone from there, which revealed no clues. On August 8th, security footage of the girls was released to the public, having been recorded just minutes before their disappearance, which showed the girls arriving at the local sports center for the vending machine at 6.28 p.m. Both sets of parents, as well as other family and friends, appeared on media pleading for any tips and information, and as a result of this, more than 2,000 phone calls and tips were received from the public. Shortly after Holly's and Jessica's disappearance, Staffordshire police contacted Soham police to inform them that they believed it was connected to one that occurred in their jurisdiction the previous year. A six-year-old was abducted, but fortunately she survived the assault by a perpetrator who was still at large. They knew the plates on the green Fort Mondial used by the abductor were reported stolen. They also believed in a separate incident this individual followed a 12-year-old girl in the same area, although in this instance, he had placed a separate stolen license plate on the car, you know, obviously a forensic countermeasure. Coincidentally, this vehicle had been sighted in Cambridgeshire, the town of Holly's and Jessica's abduction. They included this information in later media releases about the abduction, but that route went nowhere in the investigation. At the beginning of the investigation, Police started receiving reports from locals stating that they had saw the girls, all from varying times. One individual, Mark Tuck, told investigators he had driven past them at approximately 6.30 p.m. on August 4th. He remembered because he was specifically drawn to their matching Manchester United jerseys and remembered telling his wife, look, there's two little Beckhams over there. A woman named Karen Greenwood also reported seeing the girls walking quote-unquote arm-in-arm two minutes later at 6.32. One woman in a nearby village eight miles away claimed to have seen two girls whose appearance matched those of Wells and Chapman walking past her home the morning after the girls had been reported missing. On the evening of the girls' disappearance, there was supposedly a white van spotted around the neighborhood. Based on these reports, investigators located and seized this vehicle on August 7th, with no evidence being subsequently discovered. As you can see, that seemed to be like a running theme throughout this case. It was like a whole lot of, and then nothing, and then nothing. But finally, obviously it was a soft case, so obviously they finally got something. But for a while there, they kept hitting some blocks. A taxi driver will report to the police that on the early evening of August 12th, he saw a man driving a dark green saloon car struggling to contain two female children inside his car before driving off south of Soham. Police launched a media appeal in an attempt to locate who this driver was, and the following evening, a jogger alerted police of two mounds of recently disturbed earth just outside of Newmarket, which is where the car was headed. Upon conducting a search, the mounds were discovered just to be badger sets, actually. A 28-year-old by the name of Ian Kevin Huntley reported speaking to the girls just before their disappearance. On August 5th, he told investigators he stopped washing his dog to engage in a brief conversation with them on his doorstep the previous afternoon. So I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about Ian Huntley. Ian Huntley was born in Grimsby, England on January 31st, 1974, before his family would end up moving to Eamingham in 1975. He grew up having a pretty rough time in school as he was often bullied. This caused him to switch schools at age 13, where he actually continued to be bullied 
At this age, he took up an interest in airplanes after some urging from his father and would often go plane spotting at the Royal Air Force in Lakenheath, Suffolk. He would end up finishing school at 16 with five GCSE passes and chose to work instead. If you're American like me and were, was a little confused by that statement, I'm gonna explain. I'm gonna explain it to you guys because I was also a little confused. Um, apparently, in the UK, you have the option to leave school at either 16 or 18, and he opted to leave at 16. He was noted as already having an interest in young girls. He was seen hanging around 13-year-olds as an 18-year-old in the years since he left school. At age 20, he began dating an 18-year-old named Claire Evans in June of 1994, and the two got engaged after two months of dating before wedding in January of 1995. On one occasion, he beat her so extensively she suffered a miscarriage. In 1998, he raped 15-year-old Katie Bryant, who gave birth to his child, Samantha Bryant, and I'll talk more on her later. In the articles I was reading, they said like, oh, he had a relationship with Katie Bryant. She was 15 at the time. This man was 24. That is not a relationship. He raped her. Between 1995 and 2001, Huntley had sexual contact with at least 11 minors, ranging from 11 to 17 years old, that they know of. I a strong part of me I'm willing to bet my left eyeball that it was more than 11. Although no cases were ever brought to trial because the girls denied having had sex with Huntley because you know he was grooming them and all he was gaining an infamous reputation in the area for his interest in young girls which caused him to deal with abuse from the community and at one point resulted in him being fired from his job. He was charged with criminal acts only twice, once in January of 1998 for robbery and again in May of 1998 for the rape of an 18-year-old girl. In April of 1998, one month prior to the May 1998 rape allegation, he was arrested, although not formally charged, on suspicion of raping another 18-year-old girl. According to Huntley, Holly and Jessica had briefly inquired about an application for a full-time teaching assistant that was submitted by his girlfriend Maxine Carr, who was currently working as a part-time teaching assistant at the local elementary school where the girls attended. Ian Huntley met Carr when she was 22 years old, then a fish factory worker, in February of 1999 at a Grimsby nightclub. Maxine Carr, previously Maxine Cap, was born on February 16, 1977, also in Grimsby, England. She was one of two daughters, the other named Haley, to her father, Alfred Cap, an agricultural worker, and her mother, Shirley Cap. Their parents had a pretty tumultuous relationship. It ended in her father leaving when Maxine was two. She would later change her last name from Cap to Carr in an effort to distance herself from her father because she hated him so much, according to Shirley. She was an average student in school, but she always had aspirations to be a teacher. She was also the subject of bullying in school and developed a couple of eating disorders, including bulimia and anorexia. Upon meeting Huntley, she was immediately drawn to him, describing it as love at first sight, and they proceeded to move in together within four weeks of dating. She later stated he told her about the previous allegations so she could decide for herself if she wanted to be with him or not, and I guess that just was not enough to turn her off and she wanted to be with him. Ew. The turbulent relationship endured, and in 2001, they relocated to Soham after Ian was given a job as a caretaker at Soham Village College, which is a secondary school, or if you were 
confused again like me in American, secondary school would be the equivalent of middle school and high school. On his application, he used the false name of Ian Nixon, which they would have known had they done a background check on this man, which is crazy to me because like, how are you not doing background checks on people that are working with children? If they had done this background check, they also would have uncovered his past allegations. And yeah, like I know it was just allegations, but would you want someone repeatedly like the pat like 10 times been accused of rape 10 times working around children i personally would not but that's also probably why he used the alias in the first place alas despite his lack of experience he was granted the position and he and Carr relocated to swam where he began his employment in late november in february 2002 he secured Carr a teaching job at St. Andrew's Primary School, but she also lied on her application in regards to her experience and credentials. He claimed he informed them that it was not accepted, um, back to the story now with Holly and Jessica on the, on the doorstep. He claims he informed them that the application was not accepted, and one of the girls said, tell her we're sorry, before they both walked away in the direction of a local library. Police didn't fully believe this account, and one officer searched his house on August 5th, the officer noticed that despite the fact that it had been raining, there were clothes hanging on the clothing rack. No incriminating evidence was ultimately found, but that could be due to the extensive cleaning that was done. Huntley's reason being, they had a flood caused by a crack in their bathtub when he was washing the dog. Maxine would later describe Ian as a slob who pretty much left all the cleaning to her, so for the, you know, for there to be so much cleaning done, it was uh it was quite quite sketchy the officer remained unconvinced and suspicious of huntley's demeanor in the weeks since the disappearances huntley reluctantly agreed to several interviews to different media outlets speaking of the general shock in the local community and his personal distress with regards to being the last individual to see the girls alive in one interview when it was noted it seemed as if he was the last person to see the girls alive he said something along the lines like yeah it would seem so like mm. in another interview he said he was holding on to a quote-unquote glimmer of hope they would be found safe during this time during the search he even approached holly's father to offer his condolences Huntley actively participated in the search and would regularly ask the officer questions such as how is their investigation progressing and how long does it take for a DNA profile to come back and just how long could DNA evidence arrive before deteriorating just real specific suspicious questions. Huntley was observed by an officer as having three scratches on his jaw but he attributed that to his dog. Carr was also interviewed by the press and she corroborated Huntley's story adding how she wished they could have stopped what happened. During one interview, she spoke about a letter and a box of chocolates she received from Holly upon hearing of her application rejection. Knowing that, that, you know, to me immediately raised suspicion on Ian's story because if the girls had already known about Carr's rejection, why would they stop to ask Huntley about it? By the second week of the girls' disappearance, Huntley was displaying visible signs of insomnia and weight loss. He was prescribed antidepressants nine days after their disappearance. On August 16th, Huntley and Carr were formally brought in to separate locations and questioned by police, both for approximately seven hours, which I'm not even gonna lie, that's a pretty long time. After providing witness statements, they were placed in a safe house. 
By this time, unbeknownst to them, police had received tips from several Grimsby residents that recognized Huntley from his television interviews, and they recalled that he was accused of rape several years earlier. A later inquiry that I'm going to talk about a little later criticized the investigation for this since, you know, he was literally the last person to see them alive. Why would you not look into the last person that said they saw these girls alive is beyond me. Others reported that contrary to what Carr said in her interviews about her being home in Sulm that August 4th night, she had in fact been socializing at Grimsby Town Center on the night of the girls' disappearance. A picture later surfaced of her kissing a 17-year-old boy who was eight years her junior at that time, which he said was a 20-pound bet he made with his friends to kiss the ugliest girl they saw. That's so petty. I don't even think she's ugly, to be honest. The same evening, police conducted a thorough search of both Huntley's home and the grounds where he worked. By the way, Huntley, where he lived, um, was on the grounds where he worked as he and Carr remained under police watch at separate locations outside Solom. Huntley's home, again, was noted as being obviously recently cleaned, meticulously at that. The evidence they discovered was not made public at the time, but the items recovered from a hanger at Huntley's workplace were the clothing the girls had been wearing, including their charred and cut Manchester United jerseys. Fibers from the jerseys were proven to be a match to samples retrieved from Huntley's body, his clothing, his house, and his car. Furthermore, his prints were discovered on the bin where the clothes were found. On that same day, Huntley's car was forensically examined and they discovered that although he also thoroughly cleaned that, traces of a distinctive mixture of brick dust, chalk, and concrete was the same type as the road leading to where the girls' bodies would eventually be discovered. Eventually be discovered. At this time, they didn't know that. His car was also missing a rear cover seat, and they noticed he tried to replace his trunk lining with carpet, like house, like carpet from the house. After the discovery of the children's clothes, police decided to arrest Huntley and Carr on suspicion of abduction and murder on August 17th. Investigators initially stated they strongly believed the girls had been abducted, and by August 7th, they changed that to murdered. During initial questioning, Huntley refused to answer questions and appeared evasive, confused, and emotionally detached. In an apparent effort to appear more mentally ill than he was, he would start drooling during the questioning. He claims there was another reason for this, and I'll get into that later during the trial part, but accordingly, police sent Huntley to a mental institution to undergo an evaluation. On the other end, Carr quickly confessed that her August 4th story was a lie. She revealed that before she returned to Soham, Huntley told her over a call, the thing is, Maxine, they came into our house. According to Carr, Huntley told her a story about how Holly had a nosebleed, so he assisted her with it while Jessica watched. He claims the girls left right after, but that the earlier rape he was accused of had been untrue and caused him to have a mental breakdown because of what he went through. Thus, if he was quote-unquote falsely accused of involvement with this case, the same result would ensue. According to Carr, she came up with the idea to lie for him because she loved him and was holding on to the belief that he didn't do it and didn't want him to go through what he previously went through. On August 17th, the same day that they got arrested, a 48-year-old gamekeeper named Keith Pryor, along with two other friends, discovered the bodies of both girls lying side by side in a shallow deep ditch in Lake and Heath, Suffolk, at a location more than 10 miles east of Soham. If you'll recall, Lake and Heath is where Ian used to like to go plane spotting when he was growing up. 
They noticed a foul smell before discovering the bodies and immediately reported it to the police. Both bodies were in an advanced state of decomposition and in an apparent effort to destroy evidence, the murderer or murderers attempted to burn both bodies. The bodies would eventually be identified as belonging to Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, but the following day after the discovery, a press statement to the media was released confirming the discovery, adding that although a formal positive identification would take several days, they were quote-unquote as certain as they possibly could be, they were that of Holly and Jessica. Even after being informed of the discovery of the bodies and the other evidence against Huntley, Carr still insisted that he was innocent. Like, she was blinded by love. That girl was not trying to hear nothing. On August 21st, the bodies were positively identified via DNA, and nine days later, a public memorial service was held and attended by approximately 2,000 people. An online book of condolences garnered more than 31,000 messages, and on August 24th, football clubs across Britain held a minute of silence to honor the girls. The coroner on the case, Dr. Carey, couldn't determine a precise cause of death for either girl, but he hypothesized the probable cause was quote-unquote interference with the mechanics of breathing or asphyxiation. During the trial, he also stated that the, their deaths were likely the result of one or more third parties as, you know, two 10-year-old friends don't just simply drop dead together. Decomposition was also so extensive, whether they had been sexually assaulted couldn't be determined either. He concluded that the girls almost certainly were killed at a separate location from where they were discovered and placed there within 24 hours of their deaths. By August 20th, investigators had enough evidence to formally charge Huntley with two counts of murder. He was still at the mental hospital when these charges occurred, thus all preliminary hearings against him had to be postponed until the completion of his evaluation. Maxine was charged with attempting to pervert the courts of justice also being later charged in January 2003 with two counts of assisting an offender. She started off writing love letters to Huntley and would frequently ask about him, but she would go on to sever all contact with him in December of 2002. As for the evaluation results, a forensic psychiatrist determined that although psychopathic, Huntley was not suffering from any major mental illnesses and was absolutely competent to stand trial. With this evaluation, Huntley faced life in prison. In June of 2003, he survived a suicide attempt in which he consumed over two dozen antidepressants he had been collecting in his jail cell. Huntley's trial began in the early days of November 2003, in which he entered a plea of not guilty, by the way. Huntley decided to take the stand in his own defense on December 1st, where he admitted both girls had died in his house, but that neither was intentional. He claims one was a complete accident, Holly's, and that the other was a direct result of his actions, Jessica. But let me tell you with this man's story about how Jessica Holly's quote-unquote unintentional. So his story was that shortly after 6.30 p.m., Holly and Jessica entered his home because Holly had a nosebleed that wouldn't stop. He says they went into the bathroom, um, the bathroom which is in their master bedroom, and he admits this was inappropriate. Both girls sat on the edge of either side of the tub. He says the tub was already full of water because he had been washing his dog. He says while they were all inside the bathroom, he's handing wet tissues to Holly when he accidentally slips and knocks Holly into the bathtub. Holly's now in the bathtub and starts to drown while he says he just stood there in shock. Y'all, what? <laughs> like, 
what even make that make sense did this man like fucking cannonball into this girl to the point where he knocked her entire body into the tub to the point where she started drowning because the bathtub was only full of about 18 inches of water so you're telling me you knocked this girl so hard she flipped into the bathtub completely body completely submerged in 18 inches of water and drowned and you just stood there watching it happen like but y'all that's not even the crazy part he wasn't in enough shock because when holly started blaming him he says he says she started screaming you pushed her you pushed her he quote unquote accidentally suffocated her while attempting to get her to stop screaming he claims his first coherent memory after was sitting in a vomit near jessica's body he continued to give some super tearful like what was me story and that he concealed all the evidence because authorities slash paramedics might deem their deaths intentional gee i wonder why he also says that he was not attempting to appear mentally ill during questioning but that the girls' deaths were just so traumatic it temporarily erased his memory and his brain just froze when he was being questioned (laughs) the mental gymnastics this man was jumping through to explain this he lied repeatedly phone conversations secretly recorded between him and his mother um you could be you could hear him saying he quote unquote didn't remember what happened then he says he definitely remembered they left his house he also was talking to his mom who was trying to pin it on some random stalker he was basically saying how someone must have been watching the girls seen them enter his house and known they had been in there thus they actually kidnapped and killed the girls and that he was just the the pawn in a whole scheme that someone was plotting against him <laughs> like and they he said they planned it and plotted his the clothes inside the hanger to plant him for the crime i was like sir so the coroner also found a crack on holly's skull but he attributed to likely having come from the fire but he didn't rule out the possibility that the injury happened while she was still alive the prosecutor's story was that as the girls passed by huntley's home after going to the vending machine he lured them in at approximately 6 37 p.m claiming maxine was home whom again the girls were familiar with it's known as 627 huntley had a heated argument during a four minute phone call with carr Carr was said to be pretty flirtatious when drinking, engaging in various one-night stands, and the two were pretty much both cheating on each other throughout their relationship. It was later revealed Ian was cheating on Carr with a co-worker, all while still trying to minimize Carr's social interactions to limit her cheating on him. It was just a mess. That's why I said that when I was talking about that said their turbulent relationship, it was a mess, but that's not even all of it. Like I said earlier, if you'll recall, two couples, uh, the girls were spotted at 632 walking past Ian Huntley's home, but for some reason they turned around. The prosecution claimed he murdered them in a jealous rage after getting off the phone with Carr shortly after they entered his home, which they knew because he shut Jessica's phone off at 646, either outside his house or within the grounds of Swan Village College. So they definitely knew the girls were dead by 6.46 p.m. They argued that the likely motive was sexual assault, even though, again, that couldn't be conclusively determined. I completely forgot to say this earlier. I just completely skipped over it. But a phone conversation recorded between Maxine and Huntley's mother, uh, this was secretly recorded. Maxine said that 
Huntley told her it was the quote-unquote dark-haired one with the nosebleed, so Jessica, not Holly. She also said his story didn't add up because he called her sometime around 6.40 when she was going out, and she said he was speaking rather calmly and didn't even indicate he saw the girls until the very next day. So based off of that, honestly, all that information, the prosecution story made way more sense to me, obviously, because Ian Huntley's is a bunch of bullshit, but if the girls were seen, as mentioned earlier, the footage got them going to the vending machine at 6.28. So if they went to the vending machine, I'm a, yeah, it don't take long to get some, not a vending machine. So about what, like a minute or two. By 6.32, they're walking past Ian Huntley's home. Like the couple said, they saw them. And I'm guessing they probably got in. The prosecution hypothesized 6.37, but I think it was probably like a little bit, maybe just like a few minutes before 6.37. If they were definitely dead by 6.46, Maxine said he called her around 6.40. As for Maxine's charge for assisting an offender, police believe Maxine knew about the murder soon after they happened. A couple of reasons for this include, one, her mother's neighbor testified that when Ian went to pick up Maxine from Grisby on August 6th, the neighbor said she saw Maxine weeping as she looked into his trunk and when Ian noticed he quickly shut the trunk. Shirley Cab, Maxine's mother, would later be jailed for six months for intimidating this neighbor before the trial. The other reason being, during an interview when she was talking about the letter she received from Holly, refer she referred to her in the past tense, saying that was the kind of girl she was. She was really lovely. However, Maxine attributed her reason for saying this to the fact that she had worked with them in the past. Honestly, I same. I'm not even gonna lie. I do that too. I notice that sometimes I'll say was for someone. I'm like, why am I saying was as if this person died or something? It's just something I naturally do. I don't know. Do you guys do that too? That reason wasn't that big to me, but the fact the neighbor, what the neighbor saw, I was like, I honestly think that she probably did know something. And I'll explain more why a little bit later. So a forensic scientist named Helen Davy testified that a possible piece of saliva was found on the girls' burnt clothes but a test was inconclusive for a DNA profile. They also found no positive traces of semen on the clothing, which could be explained due to the charred condition of the clothes. The jury also heard a scenes of crime officer revealed that a forensic examination showed several traces of blood splattering in the hallway and main entrance to Huntley's master bedroom. A separate forensic scientist testified how this was mostly dog blood though, except two profiles that were human. One belonged to Anne and the other was consistent with Maxine's. The clothes were wet when they discovered them, but they couldn't determine if they were wet before they were burned or if water was poured on them after they were burned. During her testimony, Carr held to it that she didn't know he did it and if she did, she would have been horrified and would not have lied for him. Although she initially claimed he was an equal partner and nonviolent when she was questioned by police, she was now saying he was abusive and controlling and that she actually lied because she was pushed into a corner, not because it was her idea like she said earlier. She initially also told police that he had hit her only once and never again. Haley, who you if you remember is Maxine's sister, she spoke about how he basically started off charming Maxine with like gifts and flowers before eventually turning violent and abusive which I honestly believe because that's why I think Maxine knew about the murders. I think she really felt like she had no other choice that Ian did tell her about the murders and that's why she was seen crying into the trunk of the car. She knew about the murders, but that she was too afraid of Ian because he was abusive. So she lied about, you know, 
lied about it and gave him the alibi and everything. But eventually when she was caught by police, she didn't want to be further convicted. So she just basically kept that part secret. Also, the whole thing just seems believable to me about Huntley being abusive and controlling because she just seemed like a really insecure girl to me. Honestly, it wouldn't be surprising with, you know, her being bullied in school. She had eating disorders and just the way she was described as acting in terms of, you know, getting a little drunk, various one night stands. She had a couple relationships that lasted like pretty shortly. They weren't very successful. A lot of one night stands. So all all of that to me is just giving insecure. She also previously stated how Ian was pretty much a slob and she did all the cleaning. So when she was asked what she thought when she came home and saw that the duvet was washed, she initially thought he had another woman in the house as their bedding had been washed shortly before August 4th. She also testified to a crack in the enamel of their bathtub, which was not there before she left for Grimsby. Ann Huntley would eventually be convicted of both counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 40 years, becoming eligible for parole in 2042 at the age of 68. After his arrest, former girlfriends and sexual partners came forward to say that although Huntley appeared charming at first, he became abusive when he established control. He was attacked in prison a few times from what I've read. One inmate scalded him with boiling hot water and another, Damien Folks, attempted to kill him after stabbing him with a makeshift knife, asking afterwards, is Ian Huntley dead? I hope so. That man's had zero tolerance for child killers. Like, none. That's exactly what he said. He said, like, I have no tolerance for child killers. He ended up being transferred to another prison where he actually successfully murdered another child killer. While in prison, Huntley supposedly admitted to his father that he lied during trial, stating he actually killed Jessica to prevent her from calling for help, which makes sense to me. He made a second suicide attempt in September of 2005, this time consuming 50 tablets. He survived again, um, you know, obviously I said attempt. After his second attempt, he says he has accepted his fate of, you know, that his life, the rest of his life is going to be in prison and that he's never applying for parole out of consideration for Holly and Jessica's family. In a tape confession he gave before his second attempt, Huntley stated that he had in fact told Maxine about the murders and he wanted to own up to them, but he says she slapped him in the face and told him to get it together. He says she did not want to lose her job or their house. He also says she lied in court about how the bodies were disposed of. He claims that Carr ordered him to burn the bodies, and while it was believed the bodies were disposed Sunday evening, it was actually done Monday morning. He said they sat in the trunk of his car during the night. The story was otherwise consistent with the rest of what he claims happened. He called Maxine a liar and saying that he didn't expect her to go as far as she did lying in court, where she infamously said she quote-unquote wouldn't be blamed for what that thing in a box did to those children or me but that he otherwise hoped she found happiness in life in april 2007 he confessed to a 1997 sexual assault of a then 11 year old girl also admitting to having a sexual interest in children all while saying that holly and jessica's murders were not sexually motivated though not them had nothing to do it was not sexual at all Maxine Carr was found not guilty of assisting an offender, but she was found guilty of perverting the court of justice. She was sentenced to three years, but released in May of 2004 after serving half her sentence because she received time served for the 16 months she spent awaiting trial. She now lives under a new identity and 
it's a mess. <laughs> I was on Reddit and one of the comments I read was from someone who said they work in a police department and they said Maxine Carr had actually been moved to their area. Someone ended up eventually discovering who she was and they had to relocate her. And then as I was reading online, I read that someone exposed her identity online. And she had to relocate her. And that's what I'm thinking. This is a pretty highly publicized case. So I'm imagining there's only but so long she can stay in a place before someone recognizes who she is. Unfortunately though, multiple people have been falsely identified as Maxine Carr over the years since the murders and have been subjected to physical and verbal attacks. Samantha Bryan discovered Ian Huntley was her father while doing a school project. Katie Bryan, her mother, again the 15 year old, only told Samantha she had quote unquote another dad who was a quote unquote nasty man. But she never told her the whole story until Samantha's discovery when she produced a box of news clippings on Samantha's 18th birthday. Samantha began writing Huntley, whom she now describes as an evil monster, to try to figure out why he did what he did. In his writing back to her, Ian claimed that 15 years on and he still doesn't understand what the hell went wrong that day. After that, Samantha severed all contact with him, realizing she was not going to get the answers, whatever answers she was looking for, because that man had no remorse for he did what for what he did. Talking about some, I just don't even know what happened. Virtual inquiry was completed basically to explore the vetting techniques that allowed Ian Huntley access to children and ultimately led to Holly and Jessica's deaths. In this inquiry, a database was recommended to close the gaps of information sharing between police departments. As a result of this, the police national database would be eventually implemented to do more of a soft search on people, so allegations or investigations that did not result in a conviction. In April 2003, the house where the murders occurred, five college clothes, was demolished and is now just a patch of grass. New people continue to move into the town of Soham, unaware of the terrible crime that continues to plague the minds of its residents. Both of the girls' parents still live in the Soham area, and although residents don't speak of it, seeing the parents is almost always an instant reminder of what happened. The stress following Holly's death almost caused her parents to split, and her brother Oliver spoke about her murder publicly for the first time a few years ago saying he wishes he could see what she would have looked like now and they still talk about her quite regularly. Kevin Wells, who again Holly's father, said in a statement, we will never forget Holly but life does move on. It has to and the intensity of your grief does diminish as the years pass. Sharon and Leslie Chapman, Jessica's parents, have rarely spoken publicly since her murder but made a statement a few years ago as the one-year anniversary of the Police National Database came, saying they hope the database will mean other families don't suffer the same loss and heartbreak they did. As I was doing the outline for this, I completely forgot why I started this outline. So when I initially started researching this case, it was because I was watching, well, my mom was watching Psychic Investigators, and I was like, I want to see, like, I want to do a, a, a podcast or a video on it a case that was solved where a psychic helped with the investigation and that's how I found this case but you know the thing is I forgot about it because you cannot find this man mentioned in any articles unless you specifically search his name up in relation to the case. So David McKenzie is a psychic that Holly's family went to visit for information. This was before the girls' bodies were even found. He tearfully told them I really am sorry but both of the girls are dead. 
and proceeded to give them details about the crime that the police wouldn't find out for another few weeks. He gave them a description of a man and a woman that match Huntley and Carr, as well as a description of his car. Mackenzie does do personal readings, but he does all of his criminal investigation work for free. He's been involved in like so many cases. I also saw that he was even involved in the BTK case. If you guys see my video, my YouTube video, where I was talking about the Law and Order cases, I briefly spoke about the BTK case. And again, when I was researching that, nothing about this man. <laughs> but I just thought that was interesting. So I just wanted to include it. But that is all I have for you guys. I am done. Ian Huntley is in jail where he should be. And Maxine Carr is God knows where. If you stuck with me all the way until the end thank you so very much whatever server you're listening to this from go ahead and do what you gotta do so that you can stay updated on my next podcast where i'll be discussing the cleveland torso murder until then you can check out my latest youtube video on the murder of malakia logan if you haven't already and be on the lookout for my next video on the oakland county child killer bye y'all